From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Monday edition. Monday edition. How are we doing? So, again, I kept up a little bit with the podcast since I was gone. Not yeah. as much as Joanna did. Joanna is a, a much better student than I am. She, like, listened to all the episodes while she was out. I was like, yeah, School, like, and we talked about you so much. No, not enough. And that's why I stopped <laughs> listening. Because there were a few episodes I turned in and I was like, I don't think they missed me. I haven't been mentioned at all. I had to get to almost the end of the pumpkin episode until I was even mentioned. <laughs> I was very annoyed. And so therefore, therefore, I was like, I don't need to listen. I mean, if I'm not going to be talked about, it's not an interesting <laughs> podcast. They're just talking about subjects people can talk about. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but I did listen to some stuff that you've been drinking. Joanna, congratulations. Drinking a lot more. Oh, yes, yes. Yep, yep. Trying. <laughs> trying to drink more. <laughs> oh, God. But, yeah, what, what have you guys been up to? You can, you know, share with me things from earlier in the summer I might have missed, but what have you been imbibing? Well, recently I made uh, aviations at home. Whoa. Yeah. That is a good one. Yeah, I don't know. Definitely di- had to go get creme de violette. <laughs> and then when are you going to use it again? Uh, never, never again. Never. Because you know what? I don't know how I feel about an aviation. I you think know, it needs to grow on me a little bit more. It's very herbal. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's just a very specific flavor. And then this past weekend, I had Bell's Oberon Ale, which I've I don't think I've ever had before. You've never... Well, you're going to drink a lot of Bells. Well, you drank a lot of Bells. Right. right. (laughs) I theoretically drank a lot of Bells this past weekend. Yeah. Um, And an Oxbow Oxbow Northern Lager. Oxbow's great. Yeah, I like Oxbow too. So, uh, yeah, that was some some recent beverages. What about you, Zach? You know, it's been kind of like beer season for me lately. We're we're just... haven't quite gotten into uh, any of the fresh hot beers yet. They are like... I've been seeing the Instagram posts from the local breweries. They're very close to being released, but as of recording time, not yet quite for most of them. But uh, but still been in a big beer mood. Um, drinking, I had a really f- uh, a beer that I'd never had before. Uh, even though I think it's it's not maybe the most famous beer from this brewery, but it's still very well known. The uh, Blind Pig IPA from Russian River. Um, yes, got to have that on draft uh, not that long ago. That was pretty cool. And uh, really good Hellas from a brewery um, up in Bellingham called uh, Otherlands. Uh, also really good. Uh, but you know, of course, me also drinking drinking some wine. Had um, a really interesting bottle of like a white Bordeaux style blend from um, Clos de Soleil up in the Similkameen Valley up in British Columbia. Mm. I'm not a big fan of Sauvignon Blanc, as listeners might know, but I do love a good uh, white Bordeaux blend. So you know, add, give me a little Semillon in there, and we're good. So yeah, that's yeah. been kind of the, the standouts Blanc, for so me. Hot but, right now. So hot right now. Mm-hmm. So hot always. It is. It is. It's true. But Adam, I mean, you've been the one who's been away. What have you been drinking? Oh man, give us a few. Okay, so I won't talk about Greece because again, that's for another episode. Because I want to do a whole episode on your Greek experience. varieties, the travelogue, indigenous varieties. It's coming. Okay, it's coming okay. next week. Get ready, Monday, week from Monday. We're going to talk about prejudice around indigenous varietals. Jesus, get ready. <laughs> but uh, no, so, so uh, Naomi and I. Well, we went to Super Bueno. Again, which was delicious. Nice. Had great cocktails there. Uh, I made martinis most recently, like last weekend for Naomi and I when we stayed in. Been doing a lot of like, you know, staying in. We had beers with you, Joanna, and Evan at Finback, which I loved. Yes. And Mac. 
Uh, he was there. <laughs> and Esty. Yeah, she was there too. Uh, <laughs> which were delicious. Um, been opening some interesting wines, uh, a lot of chilled reds, <laughs> you know, chilled red season. Some wines from Division. I really like Division out of Portland, Oregon. I think they make really nice wines. You probably get a lot of Division up in Seattle, right, Zach? We do, yeah. Yeah. They've always been a really, like, uh, I mean, they weren't, like, an, they were an early proponent in Oregon of the, like, you know, lighter, yeah. kind of brighter style of, of reds. Yeah, I think they do I, I think they do a nice job with those. So I had a few of their wines. Gosh, I mean, I was I got to have my first ever experience for my 40th birthday at the Modern. Uh, that, Very exciting. That, you know, Naomi and I went, because jo- Josh and Lena took us, which was really nice. And that was an absolute, like, we had, like, some really delicious wines that Josh chose that I forget the names of, but they were all really, really good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I will be honest. I've not been that adventurous with cocktail making this summer. This is like the first time that I didn't really do any of that. Like, I wasn't juicing limes and lemons and like playing around with mixology. Like, as you kind of know, Joanna, it's Anzac. It's like once we would get Esty to bed, I either popped a bottle of wine or like I made a very easy cocktail. So it was almost always martinis. Yeah. It was just like, okay, I can do this really quickly. Here's the drink. Like, let's hang out. Let's watch something. Let's try to chill out before we pass out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's <laughs> there's no, like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to, you know, try to recreate. I'm very impressed. By, all I'm trying to say is I'm very impressed you're making aviation. <laughs> like, the fact that you have the bandwidth right now, I'm going to get there. But I'm like, wow. I have to have something to talk about on the <laughs> podcast. You know this. <laughs> um but yeah, and I wish I, I I wish I could say that I've checked out some new spots recently, but I haven't. Like I wound up going to more of my like standbys. Like I went to Lalu for mm-hmm. over Labor Day weekend and had delicious wine there. Like it's but nothing nothing new. Yeah. I need some new, but I think that's what fall's for. Yeah. I got some new fall fits too, so I'm ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> um anyways, so cool business stuff happened while I was away and we want to talk about it. And so I've had this like comment made to me multiple times by people in Napa. So, I mean, look, if we if we take this way back, right, there's always going to be jealousy, et cetera, w- about larger wine companies, larger spirits companies, larger beer companies. And a joke that wine makers in Napa have made to me in passing before is like, well... Gala will never figure out luxury wine because if they ever do, then we're all screwed. Mm-hmm. But they never will. This they are a grocery store company, and that's a that's a comment that a bunch of people have made. And what I think is really interesting is over the past year, but especially last two weeks, it is very clear those people should be very nervous mm-hmm. because Gallo is figuring out luxury wine, and I think what makes it interesting in the way that they're figuring it out is it is way more attuned to the actual market than the other wine companies that are out there trying to figure out luxury high-end wine. And here's what I mean by that. So in the past uh, two weeks, Gallo has purchased Rombauer and they have purchased Massacan. If you look at other major wine companies that are Close to Gallo size, but probably nowhere near. Besides, maybe the the number two. I'm not going to mention other companies. You can look up the names of who the number two wine company is in America, etc. They're publicly traded. Um, a lot of these companies have bought brands, not wineries, attached to vineyards. 
right? So they've then tried to scale these luxury wines, et cetera, or they bought luxury wineries kind of outside the Napa world and Paso, things like that. Brands that, to be honest with you, like I don't think are as known by the people that help keep a brand a luxury wine mm-hmm. in the same way. So really respected sommeliers, et cetera. What Gallo has done instead is they've gone, and first of all, everyone will publicly admit that they have done an amazing job with Louis Martini, done an amazing job with that brand. But what they've also done is they went and they bought two brands that are both, I think, similar and different. They went and bought Rombauer. Okay, so most of us are going to make fun of Rombauer on this podcast, right, of of this generation's age. Oh, it's a buttery Chardonnay. It's cougar juice. Yes, but it is is a high-end white wine that a demographic of people love, especially in parts of the country that are not New York and Seattle, right, that love it. It is considered the epitome of high-end, you know, California Chardonnay. They have so much so that they've had to buy new vineyards to continue to keep up with demand. Yeah. Right? So they all, And they've also not gotten all, that, all those holdings. So amazing vineyards of high-quality Chardonnay grapes. Mm-hmm. And then... They did something no one thought they would do, and they, they did buy a brand that doesn't actually own vineyards, Massacan, but that is attached to a highly respected winemaker by the trade, mm-hmm. right, who has done other amazing projects in the past, who has that, like, hipster wine cachet, who has his wines poured at 11 Madison Park and Union Square Cafe and, like, all the top restaurants, and is making a cool white wine in Napa that is not Chardonnay. And that is not Sauvignon Blanc, but is instead Italian varietals. Right. Right. So they went out and bought, and they bought white wines. Right. Which are also, I think, really, is really smart. Super interesting. Super smart. Yep. Because they're keeping up with the moving, they're showing that they understand the changing tastes of the American demographic, higher acid wines, even if it has a little oak on it, but higher acid, lower alcohol, while still doing it in the U.S. Meanwhile, what no one also paid attention to is they were also doing it in Italy, where they were, you know, bringing, you know, setting up relationships with some of the top Italian producers in the country, right? But I think that they're showing that they have figured this out, and I am really interested to see what else they do. I think that they're going to buy more. I think that they're going to buy other brands like Massacan. Okay. Um, I would be curious to, to hear what if if you or Zach have any like guesses Thoughts? as to what those could be down the road. Um, but I think they will. I think also Dan showing that he's willing to sell is to Gallo is a signal to other people in the industry who respect him that clearly they are a have given him all he need to see that they will be a very good operator. And don't forget, they're already working with Randall Graham as well. Sure. Another highly respected winemaker. You know, there there have been jokes like, oh, well, they'll just buy it and like, you know, they'll do whatever they want the brand. Dan is already committing that he's going to stay on for at least 10 years. Right. Right, like that. This is going to be his project, and then he's done with wine. Again, all signals that they have shown him whatever he needs to see to make him feel comfortable that he can put his name on this and continue to run in the circles he runs in. Because he, again, he is a different than Rombauer. Right, he is still friends with all of these high end psalms and you know wine sellers, etc. And he wants to keep them as his friends, and he wants to be able to still pour his wine with them. So he's going to think very you know, seriously about how his wines are going to still be treated. And clearly Gallo has told him they will be fine. And I think overall, all of this shows that they have figured out how to move into luxury 
extremely strategically. And if I were any other wine company right now, I think especially especially because of the Massacan purchase, I would be very nervous that they are that they have figured this out and they are not now this joke that you can make that well they are just a grocery store wine company. They I think have the potential to become a very focused, very serious luxury wine company as well. And that for the industry is both a good thing because I think they actually the way that they approach wine, the way that they sell wine is great, but also a scary thing for other people because that means that now the for competitors. Yeah, the eight hundred pound gorilla yeah. figured out the other side of the business too. Right. Well I think I think these two purchases were very strategic, right? And they're very totally. different, like you said, but in terms of scale, right? Because Rombauer is three hundred and fifty thousand cases a year. Right. And then Massacan is seventy five hundred. Yeah. And so, you know, the way that Dan puts it is that he just needed the logistical and yep. distribution support that Ron Bauer wouldn't need. Right. So right. so I think he you know, these relationships will operate probably very differently. Yep. And, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens to Massacan specifically in the coming years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like interesting to me because these are like almost like it's like hedging your bets in a way for for Gallo in, a, in an odd way. Yep. Like the Rombauer acquisition is an acquisition that says we believe that this established brand, this established style has a, an established audience that will maintain for the foreseeable future. And that our basic job is just like, hey, we want to just keep things running the way they're running. Yeah, right? Right. We're probably not looking to grow production immensely because it's already very large. You know, Rombauer has its many, many diehard fans. And, you know, the Chardonnay is the most famous thing. But their other wines are also, in some cases, very highly regarded. Yeah, there's also. Infidel people are, like, huge fans of too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yet with Massacan, you can't help but believe that, you know, Dan Petrosky has been pretty open over the last few years about his desire to grow the brand, to make yeah. it, you know, to make a lot more wine than he was making. And you have to imagine that that's a big part of what, you know, I mean, the logistical support, whatever. I mean, to me, that means, you know, a big influx of money to expand production from 7,500 cases to probably three or four times that over the next few years. And that's an interesting bet to make on any brand. And it's especially interesting because of the specific style of wine that Dan makes and, you know, the fact that a lot of the success of his brand to this point has been that, you know, kind of cool cachet, right? And does that work as well when the production goes up a lot we will find out but it's the kind of bet that a company like gallo can afford to make because you know it's just for them in their portfolio it's still a relatively small piece of what they do and if it turns out that you know what they find the upper limit of for massacan and it's a little lower than they had imagined well okay that's not a crisis the way it might be for dan continuing to try to do it on his own or taking in a different kind of funding that might be more kind of might need immediate benefit in a way that i don't think gallo does to the same extent and I do think it's really interesting because, you know, we've talked about this obliquely a few different ways in when talking about Napa specifically, and even just about the American wine industry. One of the real interesting and challenging uh, things that faces the industry right now is like, if you are a person like a Dan Petrosky who builds a brand, builds a winery, creates a, a, a market for yourself, but kind of reaches an upper threshold, right? You're just not able to grow more. You're not able to, you know, whether it's get, you know, purchase more land in some cases or get more grapes than others or just there's a sort of like I've done what I feel like I can do kind of on my own. Yeah. If Gallo proves to be a good and competent and sort of effective partner and, you know, sort of an investor, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, owner more accurately for Massacan, 
you could imagine other wineries with some similar cachet, maybe different ambitions or similar ambitions, but in different spaces being like, you know, that's a company that we believe we can continue to make the same quality of wine, have the same kind of reputation and, you know, ethos, but also the kind of logistical support that you need if you want to even maybe just continue to exist in some cases. I mean, again, we're going through this period of time where winemaking in California, winemaking in the U.S. is under a lot of different stresses, you Mm -hmm. know, some environmental, some financial, some, you know, having to do with other things and just having that support probably might look a lot more appealing to producers now than it did five or 10 years ago. Yeah. What do you think, I mean, Zach and I recently talked about Mm -hmm. grocery store wine and wines at lower price points. What do you think kind of prompted this, these decisions? I mean, I think that for a company like them, I'm not inside their heads. Sure. um, But I think that they already have the brands they need on the entry level side. Sure. They took a massive amount more of them from Constellation. Who knows what they'll do with all of them? Like, I know that there's like a there's a contingent of people like are really hoping they like return Ravenswood to its glory days, prior to it being a grocery store wine when that when it that happened when it sold to being this super high end you know Zinfandel. But they already have that. I think they have perfected how to make those wines, and. They have, over the course of the you know last decade or so, gotten very good with the right winemakers in in still doing boutique boutique bespoke high end luxury wines. Right, that understand that they can't make them in the same ways. They're making them at the facilities. There's clearly winemakers are willing to stay on. Like when they bought Martini, the winemaker was willing to stay. They've attracted better people like Randall who want to make wines with them. Um, and so I think that has given them the confidence to go out and make these purchases. And as the as they recognize that, like, I don't think one category or the other at this point fully drives all wine purchases. So they have to diversify across the entire mm-hmm. spectrum. And you are seeing that, in general, we continue to hear this drumbeat of premiumization, premiumization, premiumization. So they're there w- when the audience moves there, but they're also still at the entry level side if the audience says hey you know this is a recession year and i can't drink this kind of chardonnay anymore i'm going to drink that kind of chardonnay now right and if you don't think that dan is potentially going to influence other wines at gallo you're crazy you know just even being there meeting with the winemakers talking etc like there will be influence mm-hmm. and if you don't think that he's going to influence potentially other people as i said to to think about it you're crazy to come over to gallo i think those are things that are very interesting about all of this. Well, like depending on his experience, right? Yes. And those things are very, you know, again, I I think they also, his relationships are still very important because I think that there will, there will not be a lot of people in the industry. Like the industry is all based on relationships, right? So at this point in time, the wines that people tend to like in the like sort of gatekeeping trade arena are the wines that are made by people they know. They feel like these are wines that are of the, you know, from these people's bare hands, et cetera. Like all these people know Dan. And I'd be very shocked if a lot of these people stop buying Dan's wines. 
And maybe this allows Dan to sell them more wine at better prices so that he can now be on buy the glass programs at more places for people who like him. Like all of this is now possible for him. And, you know, I've only met Dan once. I know other people on the team have know him much better than me, but he's a very nice person. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I think he's someone that is just going to be able to get people to really in the in the trade to love his wines and keep them on. And then Gallo has a foothold into these places. Right. And maybe the next time Dan comes to poor Mass again, they send him along with one of Randall's wines. Or they also say, hey, like, do you think that this person would be interested in trying the really high-end martini? Or, you know, it, it all is helpful to their business. And the thing I think is most interesting is they're also betting, and I'm curious for Zach's thoughts on this too, they're really betting with Massacan on non-traditional Napa grapes. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is really interesting. And saying like, yes, we think that a Napa wine can sell that is not Cabernet, Chardonnay, or at the very end of it, Sauvignon Blanc. Really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, in in a way, they have proof of concept because Dan has been selling his wine, right? Like, it's not a new project out of nothing. It, It has some track record. So... You know, again, the the bet is more like we can we can sell scale more this, of yeah. this, presumably. I think there's like two pieces of this that are really interesting. One is we I feel like God, we had a conversation a long time ago. Now I don't even remember exactly what prompted it, but we talked about the sort of like we've moved past the era of like people getting criticized for quote unquote selling out. Yep, and I think we're talking about it with beer specifically. Yeah, but like it remained. It's interesting to me, and it will continue to be interesting because I don't think. I mean, I think there were some people who were a little surprised by this news about Massacan, but I don't think people were necessarily, like, feeling – there wasn't the kind of angst and, you know, b- stuff about, you know, oh, you've betrayed us. It, you know, maybe it's just a different culture, maybe whatever. I, I mean, wine has never had quite the same sort of thing – well, it has, but it's been a little different, you know, than the kind of craft beer movement. In any case, I do think that there's an element of, you know, it'll be interesting to see – as you surmise, I think you're probably right that it's not going to suddenly people are not going to stop buying Dan's wine just because, you know, some of the proceeds go to a different company or whatever. Like, I don't think people are going to overthink it to that extent. I do think it's quite it's curious to see if this does, you know, create more demand for things from Napa that are not Cabernet, particularly um, because, you know, Napa has been fighting this ongoing I want fighting is what I put just been under this ongoing evolution of like more and more cab, more and more cab, more and more cab. And I, it's understandable, but it's also a little bit of a, you know, it's a little sad in a way. Yeah. And so if the success of potential success of Massacan can provide a backstop against some of that can, you know, create demand for, you know, whether it's some of these Italian white varieties or just anything else in Napa, that's not Cabernet functionally, that would be, I think, a good outcome that goes way beyond Gallo and way beyond Massacan. Mm-hmm. I agree. I also think the other really interesting thing here is, you know, we talked about this a little bit about the sort of like, does this signal a recognition from from Gallo and from maybe other other large wine companies that they do have to have a little bit more, you know, they have to have some a range of different offerings. Mm-hmm. It's important to have kind of cool producers in your portfolio, not just volume producers. Yep. And I that's where I think the really interesting conversation continues to go because again, from a like, you know, like Massacan is is always going to be more 
I think, or well, I shouldn't say always, very likely will always be a small, small portion of the Gallo portfolio and likely something that's in there because it signals an important thing about the company that they want to signal. And I think that's good. I think that's an important part of a balanced portfolio of wines in that, you know, I think as you said at the outset, like this is something that I think Gallo has recognized of late and is acting on. And I think, you know, that is important. I think the last piece here too that I want actually both of your feedback on is I also wonder, you know, Gallo is a wine company at heart. And obviously they've expanded their business. Mm-hmm. They're in the spirits business now, et cetera. But I wonder if just fundamentally part of what made this deal make sense for Dan, and again, you know, not trying to get inside his head. I don't know him. I've never met him at all. So I, I really don't know him at all. But is, you know, that for all of the, you know, for the various things about Gallo, they are fundamentally a wine company. And in this, you know, we keep talking in a way about like, you know, the challenges that wine faces. And yet we know that Gallo deeply remain, remains deeply, deeply committed to wine as a category. And even if they are, you know, also expanding into spirits and stuff like that, they're not giving up on wine. And I do wonder if that is a thing that will, you know, for, like we said before, for other people who or other companies that might be looking to sell or take on someone as a either minority or majority owner, that's probably a, you know, that, that might be, maybe feels a little better. That they're committed to if wine. Yeah. Yeah. If you're yeah. the person who built this brand and you're thinking about selling, I mean, there are other companies too. They're not the only one, obviously, but you know, they, but at their scale, they kind of are. The others are not, I mean, they have wine divisions, but they're not wine companies first. Yeah. No. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, Dan did mention that there was this, obviously, Gallo's connection to Italy, and and that was very important to him in Mm -hmm. making this decision. But I think to your previous point, Zach, you know, this feels like a really big get for Gallo to have Mm -hmm. such a cool brand in their portfolio. And I don't know, we talked about some other wineries, you know, Previously, would any other kind of cool, trendy wine brand be attracted to a company like Gallo? Would they consider this selling out? You know, that kind of thing. Um, So this could be a good signal to other brands as well that he was willing to do this. Because, you know, we talked about what, Scribe? Yeah. Would Scribe ever do something like this? We decided no. We decided no. Right. (laughs) We decided no. But we did. We said, said, like, there's others in sort of the that area that have the people started talking about that may be more interested than they used to be. I mean, I don't know, like what would Steve Mathiason do? That was the first name that came to mind. Oh yeah. yeah. That's a good one. You know, what would he do? Like would he sell? I don't know. I mean, it's a hard game when you still have to make wine for other people to be able to support your own project, like which he does. Like so maybe he would sell. You know, are what are the other sort of wines that we hear of amongst the trade that they're willing to pour from California. Like the other thing that I thought about was, um, oh man, now I'm just blinking off the, the rails back and feel stuff. Like would they do it? Because again, like it's a, they're cool wines, but it would field recordings. Yeah. Like, or alternatively, maybe like a little less kind of cool in terms of being like their, their classic California Napa wines, but like, what about Corison? Exactly. You know, what's what? What's her succession plan? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and that's another cool kid wine. Yeah. I this love is sounding things. like a very beer conversation I right like now. it. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Gallo, let us know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, again, I think long story short, like this was a very smart play. If you saw this as anything else, I think you're kind of out to lunch at what's, you know, what this company is doing mm-hmm. and how strategic they're being and 
again, I think that the people who made the bigger deal about Rombauer missed it because hmm. the bigger deal here from for us as we've talked about this is the strategy of pairing that with the 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 purchase of Massacan. Yeah. And understand. I want to say one thing about that really quick. I think from a signaling perspective, you're right, but I I know we mentioned it before, but I just want to reinforce Rombauer remains an incredibly popular oh, totally. brand. Yeah. Like, oh, totally. It is it is beyond a cliche at this point for certain wine pros to, like, look down their nose at Rombauer and, like, have I been guilty of that in my life? Yes, I will cop to it. But I think it's important to recognize that, like, Rombauer is not a, like, oh, it's a legacy brand that, like, still, it's, it is it is still a very popular, very successful and and very in-demand brand. And that is... Uh, that's why Gallo bought it. Yeah, totally. It is real successful. Extremely successful. They wouldn't have had to buy more vineyards if they weren't. Well, it's like exactly. to capture those drinkers, those very loyal drinkers, and then also in the context of the ongoing conversation of, you know, the next generation not being wine drinkers, to have another brand that's cool to attract those drinkers, I think is also very smart. I agree. Well, y'all have a great week. Uh, let us know your thoughts on this and other things. Uh, hit us up at podcast.vinepair.com and Joanna, Zach, we'll talk to you on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.